Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. The seven wonders of the ancient world have marveled the minds of modern society for so many years. One of the ones that really make my mind wonder in awe of how in the world they made those structures is the Great Pyramid of Giza. How in the world, with such a, quote, primitive, unquote, mindset, how could they have made such structures without all of the modern technology that we have today. I find it somewhat humorous as some people have allegedly said that it was aliens who came and inhabited the earth that gave man the ability to make those pyramids. (laughs) As we look at the ancient culture, we understand that they were very brilliant and they had ways of building these structures without all of the usage of the technology and equipment we have today. And so that is why it's called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, because we don't understand how they made such a structure. Another one takes us to the ancient period of Babylon. And we read about the hanging gardens of Babylon there on a a side of a cliff on these structures. They built all this massive, beautiful gardens of shrubbery and flowers and all the plants. Another one is a statue of a Greek sun god called the Colossus of Rhodes Memorial. Many structures in the ancient world were devoted to honoring the pagan idols of that culture. And so we see in the city of Ephesus, as we study earlier in chapter 2, that in the city of Ephesus they had a large temple. They had a large Colosseum that they called the Temple of Artemis or the, the Temple of Diana. And there we understand that, that 20 to 50,000, give or take, you know, we don't really know, but it was a large coliseum that they used as a place of worship for this pagan god. Our minds marvel at such a structure. The lighthouse of Alexandria was made to, to the height of 350 to 400 feet high, and there stood far above many of the structures of its day. Then we read of a tomb built on behalf of Masalus in the 350s B.C. About 350 years before Christ, they built this mausoleum, if you will, for this ruler to be buried. So every time you go to a cemetery and you see a mausoleum there to, to place dead carcasses to be honored, they're doing so, in a sense, in this man's memory. Then we come to the seventh one that That intrigued me as I was studying our passage today. I want to take you back to the Greek culture. In the days of Greece, in fact, to the city of Olympia, where they would play all these athletic games, and we would often now refer to these types of games as the Olympics. And in this city, they had a large temple and a large altar. But in the midst of the temple and the altar, there was a statue of the Greek god Zeus. Time goes on, and history tells us that at some point, the altar of that place was moved to Berlin. 
Germany. And in the 1930s and 1940s, we read about how Adolf Hitler would go to that place and just stare at the altar. Zeus was a Greek god that symbolized power. And in the Pergamum or the Pergamus culture, they idolized these gods. They idolized these emperors. And we see that God in his sovereignty allowed a church to be birthed in this culture so that the truth of the gospel could march forward into that period of darkness. Pergamum, or Pergamus, as the King James says, was, this, was the capital city of the ancient Greek kingdom of Pergamus until the last of the Pergamian kings bequeathed his realm to Rome in 133 BC. So we see that the Greeks were the world empire. And then Rome came and conquered the Greek culture. And we see that, that this place was, was changed to a capital city in the Roman empire. And in fact, as we look at this, this culture, as we look at the city of Pergamos, we understand that the history tells us that a large temple was erected and built so that they could worship the emperor, that is the ruler, like worshiping the president of our day. Pergamum became the chief town of the new province of Asia and the site for the first temple of the Caesar cult erected to Rome and Augustus in 29 BC, just about 30 years before Jesus came on the scene. A second shrine was later dedicated to the emperor Trojan. The worship of also Asculapius, that is the, the god of healing, and of Zeus was also prominent in this time period. I find it interesting that the symbol of Aesculapius still is alive and well today. Every time I go to the hospital, specifically Carillion, there's a symbol on the side of the building. And, and whenever I saw the symbol of a large staff with a snake wrapped around it, I would think back to the serpent in the book of Numbers and when Jesus referred to that serpent in John chapter 3. But I want you to understand this, that that symbol is not referring to that time in Numbers or when Jesus referenced it in John 3. It's referring back to this ancient Greek and Roman culture where they worshiped this God of healing and they took as a symbol a pole and wrapped a serpent around it and they would use that as a means of worshiping this false God that they called the God of healing. Interestingly enough, we are told by historians that these people were the first snake handlers. And they would gather these serpents and snakes and they would use them in these rituals to, pro to provide healing for those who were sick. Zeus, of course, was known as the the savior of the world in that time period because of his ability to help guide these people in victory and battle. But we know that the Bible tells us that Zeus is not the savior of the world. Jesus is the savior of the world. It is also interesting here that not just the city of Ephesus, but here the city of Pergamum or Pergamus had the influence of the Nicolaitans. And this whole concept would eventually flourish in this period because it was a place where politics and paganism were closely aligned. And as a result, much pressure on Christians to compromise their beliefs became extremely heavy upon their shoulders. This culture in Pergamum, they emphasized education. They emphasized this false worship. They emphasized healing and medicine, but they also emphasized learning. Alexandria is known for the great library but so is Pergamos. Pergamos had a library that had a volume of 200,000 works stored away. 
As we think about this church in Pergamos, my mind began to wonder, well, where is this church mentioned in the book of Acts? We read about how Ephesus is mentioned. But what about Pergamos? Is it there? Well, in Acts chapter 16, we find the Apostle Paul is on a second missionary journey. And in verse number 7 and verse number 8, he goes through the region called Mycenae. And in this region, we believe that Pergamos was located in that region. So it is very likely that the Apostle Paul marched forward the gospel of Jesus Christ in this ancient city, Pergamos. Then we read in Acts chapter 19, as Paul comes to Ephesus, as we looked at before, that in verse number 10, the Bible says that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now all that to lead us to this thought. That is, there's really only one word that summarizes the church of Pergamos, and it's the word compromise. Compromise, compromise, compromise. When you read these several verses, that should be the only thing ringing in your mind. Compromise. So today I want to label my thoughts with this phrase. The compromising church of Pergamos. The compromising church of Pergamos. Today, I want to share a key statement that's going to summarize everything I'm about to share with you and really summarize the message of these verses. And that is this thought. There is no room for compromise in the Christian life. There is no room for compromise in the Christian life of any way, shape, or form. Compromise has no place in the church of God or in the life of a believer called a Christian. And today we're going to see how the church of of Pergamos was tempted to compromise in so many areas. And they gave in to that temptation in many of them. Today I, I want to ask and answer this question. In what ways are we being tempted today to compromise our faith in Christ? Whether you realize it or not, you're being tempted and tested and tried to compromise your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A key verse that kind of could summarize all of this is found in James chapter 4. And it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know what the penicillin for the problem of compromise is? You know what the cure for compromise is? It is verse number 7 of James chapter 4. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Today I want to share with you five thoughts about compromising, about temptation, and about our faith. And the first thought is found in verses 12 and 13. As I read these verses, here's the thought I want to relate to you. Resist the temptation to compromise the Great Commission. Resist the temptation to compromise the Great Commission. Look at verse number 11. We see that, or excuse me, verse number 12. We see that this is a a verse here that is like many of the other verses, the angel perhaps a pastor or perhaps an angelic being himself or or perhaps a combination of both or just a messenger is coming to deliver this message by the Savior who John wrote down to Pergamos. Remember that this was uh, an ancient, these ancient cities were on the Roman road and so they began in Ephesus and it kind of began to circle all the way around and along this Roman road, this circle, all these cities were there. And we find Pergamos. And the message that is being relayed to this church is a message directly from the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. We often read about in the Word of God how God's Word is likened to a sword. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we see that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
The verse in Hebrews chapter 4 is revealing that God's word has a convicting power about itself. We also read in scripture how God's word has a delivering power. How God's word can convict our souls, can convict our minds of what we're going on in our lives and the sin. And then how God can deliver us from that sin. God's word has that capability. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the very word of God. But then God's word has another power. It has a power of chastisement and judgment. And this verse right here, it is a verse that, revealing that God's word of conviction and judgment is now thundering down upon this church. And in verse number 12, we see that. And in verse 13, we see the word of praise, the word of commendation to this, to this church. And in these verses, I just want you to understand this, that in verse 13, they got this right. They got the Great Commission right. They did not compromise in the Great Commission, and we praise God for that. But the temptation that they were suffering from was laying aside the Great Commission for some other mission. Our mission today as a church, our mission today as a body of Christ, our mission today as a body of Christians is the Great Commission to go into the highways and to the hedges and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Then as, they come, as people come to faith, we disciple them, we baptize them, and we train them to go and do likewise. That is the, the message we're called to. And in verse number 13, the Bible says that God knows their works. And this term works, it gives the idea of, of laboring and toiling in the fields, just like in the previous two churches that we mentioned. And here we see that God knew their laboring in the gospel and his word. And he says he knew where their church dwelt. But then check it out now. Here the Bible says, even where Satan's seed is, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. We read that throughout the New Testament. Satan, in a sense, temporarily, has dominion over the world and the nations and is, and is seeking to try to oppose God and his word and Jesus Christ. And we see that in this culture of the day in which Pergamus was alive and well, Satan's capital for doing his bidding was in this city. Now understand this, that some have tried to list out several different reasons of, of why or what this meant and, and the meaning behind this verse or this phrase. And I want to share with you kind of the three popular opinions and then, and then just kind of share with you that all it means is that this is the place where, G, where Satan made his capital seat and there he was ushering out his false sense of theology. One reason for this is the Caesar cult. That is emperor worship. Imagine the current administration, or any previous administration in America. And imagine one day a year, we came to a, a place of worship and we offered sacrifice to the President of the United States. How foolish that would be. Well, once a year in the Roman culture, they would come to a temple and they would offer sacrifice to Caesar or whoever was in charge and ruling. And if you did not do that, you died. Well, because of the influence of this, this emperor cult is the reason why many scholars believe that, that Satan made his throne there, ultimately typifying this, this emperor cult that one day the Antichrist, the one who definitely opposes God, will seek the entire world to worship him. So maybe that's why his seat was here. 
Then some have subscribed that, that because Zeus, they had a temple for Zeus here, and they worshiped Zeus, the god of power. Maybe that's why this was his seat. Well, we know ultimately God is the God of power. He is the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. And then some have said that because of the worship of Aesculapius, the God of healing, that they made this place Satan's capital. Well, let me just share this with you. If any man, woman, boy or girl, is seeking an entire world to worship them, you better believe Satan's presence is there. If any false deity or false place of worship is alive and well, you better rest assured that Satan's presence is there. And so understand, Satan's presence was highly known in this culture. And God raised up a church here in a capital city for Satan to do his biddings for the word of God to reign supreme. And we see that, that as a result of this culture, this church underwent severe persecution. The Bible says that they held fast to the name of Christ. They did not deny the faith that they had in Christ. And in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwells. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Antipas. This is the only time he's mentioned in Scripture Church tradition tells us that he was the pastor of this church and that he died a martyr's death. Perhaps the reason why he died a martyr's death was because he, along with many of the other Christians of that day, refused to bow down and worship Caesar and call him Lord, and they refused to sacrifice to him. And perhaps as a result of that, church tradition tells us that they took a, bowl, a brass bowl and heated it up with fire and placed Antipas in it to burn alive. No matter what the culture is worshiping, no matter what the leaders of a nation are saying, we are called to march forward the good news of Jesus Christ into this culture. He is the one true God worth worshiping. And we can direct the people in that age to say, hey guys, Jesus is the only Lord. Jesus is the only God. And worship him and him alone. Here we see that this church was faithful. Verse 13 is the word of praise from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. And may God help us to be faithful. Remember, there is no compromise in the Christian life, especially pertaining to the Great Commission. That is our mission, so let us march forward and do it each day of our lives. But verses 14 through 16 is the word of rebuke from our Savior. And in verse 14, I want to share with you this second thought, this second temptation. But before I do, remember, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you is what James 4, 7 says. The message today is a message of compromise. How this church compromised their faith in many areas. And in verse 14 is the area in which they compromised. And it's the second thought I want to relate to you about temptation and compromise in our faith. Resist the temptation not only to compromise the Great Commission, but secondly today, resist the temptation to compromise your sanctification. Resist the temptation to compromise your sanctification. Look at verse 14. We see that Jesus goes back into the Old Testament. 
And he recalls to these believers' minds a historical account that they would have been aware of. And he says, but I have a few things against you. So he, 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 he shared the message of praise in verse 13. And now is the message of rebuke. This is the message that God is warning these believers about. And if they do not heed this message, they will result in the judgment of God on that house of God. Verse 14 says, but I have a few things against thee. Notice the King James uses of the term thee. Whenever you see thee, T-H-E-E, or thy or thine in the English Bible, it is a reference to the singularity of that word. And so here he is saying this is a message for this specific church of that day. Now, we can receive application from this today that we should not compromise in this area, but this is the area that the church of Pergamos compromised in, that they held to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. So, so here's a thought today. Resist the temptation to compromise your sanctification. This verse, verse 14, takes us back to the book of Numbers, probably a book of the Bible that you don't read a whole lot of. But in Numbers chapter 22 through 25, we read the account of Balaam and the ruler or king Balak. And Balaam was, in a sense, a prophet, but he ultimately became known as a false prophet. And we read about Balaam and his donkey, how the donkey spoke. And we read about how because of Balaam's influence and the people taking heed to his influence, thousands of people died in one day. So what was, what was Balaam saying to these people? Well, Numbers chapter 31, and I believe it's verse number 8, if my memory serves me correct, is that, that, that the Bible gives us a commentator on that scene. And Balaam went around and said, he gave a word of advice to Balak and said, hey, let us, let us use the women of the heathen culture to seduce the Israelites to worship false gods and to commit sexual sin. And so as a result, many died because of their spiritual and sensual whoredom. Notice here, throughout Paul's letters and a few other places in the New Testament, we read about eating meats that are offered unto idols. Now, understand that in the ancient culture, this is not something we really do today in America, but in the ancient culture, they would take animals and they would place them on an altar, they would sacrifice it, and then the, the smell would go up and they would use it as a, as a way to worship their false god. And then they would take that meat that was just offered as a sacrifice and they would go and have a meal together. And in a sense, they were worshiping that god through the meal. And the Bible says, and Paul says, that we are not to be associated with those practices or eating the food that is offered up to idols. And then the Bible says to commit fornication. Now this term fornication in the English Bible, it is a term that describes sexual sin. And at some point in all of our lives, we've been hit by one of the two things, idolatry or immorality. At some point, all of us are guilty of this. So understand this, that we have to pause and say that sanctification is worth living for. It's worth being holy to God because God wants us to be holy. But understand this, what I'm about to share with you, at some point in our lives, it's going to hit us all. But the Bible says that adultery is sin. Cheating on your spouse is sin against God. The Bible says it's sexual immorality that is 
Partaking in sex outside of marriage is sin against God. Having sexual relations with somebody of the same gender, the Bible declares that to be sin. The Bible also tells us, in fact, Jesus said this. Maybe you're here today and you've you've never committed any of those things. But here's one we've all committed. Jesus said if you even look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So we're all guilty. In fact, I, I, I want you to understand this, that this term fornication in the English Bible comes from a Greek word that we get the word pornography. And so understand this, that lust and porn, it is all sin. Just like having sex outside of marriage and just like committing adultery with your spouse and just like sleeping with somebody of the same gender and just like sleeping with an animal. The Bible mentions it. Today, understand this, that that this is a reference to the culture of Balaam's day, how these, these people would come and they would seduce these Israelites into worshiping false gods and partaking in their orgy festivals in their houses of worship. And so here, this is a call for this church to remain faithful in their sanctification and in their purity. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, how does this all relate to us today? Well, here's how it relates to us. In Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says that we are to not intermingle with those who are not called believers, especially in our relationships and marriage. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. The Bible says in James chapter 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So today, as we see this verse, we might look at this verse and, and be like, oh, well, well, these were just believers of that day. Understand this, that the culture of Rome is still alive and well because we see it in the culture of America today. Sure, we may not be bowing down to the false idol of Zeus or some of the others that they worshipped, or the President of the United States, but we are still bowing down to sin every single day, and God calls us to holiness. Resist the temptation to compromise your sanctification. Resist the temptation to compromise the Great Commission. The greatest witness in the world is the one who is living a life that matches up the doctrine found in Scripture. There is no room for compromise in the Christian life. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But now may I draw your attention to verse 15. In verse 15, we see that that Jesus, who gives this word to John, who now the angel has brought this word to the church of Pergamos, is referring to the book of Numbers, but now transitions and uses that scene in the book of Numbers to talk about these Nicolaitans of their day. Verse 15 says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Notice in verse number 6, the Nicolaitans are mentioned But it's the deeds, it's their actions that are mentioned in verse 6. But now here in verse 15, it is the doctrine, that is the teachings that they were going around and teaching to these people. The Bible says that they have them, that is they're holding to these beliefs. So here's the third thought I want to share with you. The third temptation of compromising is this. Resist the temptation to compromise sound doctrine. Resist the temptation to compromise sound doctrine. Notice. 
in verse number 14, it says the doctrine of Balaam. Here in verse number 15, the Bible says the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And so the question that we ask is, is who were these Nicolaitans and what were they teaching? And so to, to make a, a long story short, we don't know exactly who these Nicolaitans were. Some people associate them with Nicholas in chapter 6 of the book of Acts, how he was one of the first seven deacons appointed to go and serve tables in the early church. And some say that, that he apostatized and began going around and teaching false doctrine. And so now we see that this is what it is. And so some have said that. We don't know that to be certain. We don't know exactly who these Nicolaitans were. But what we do know is this. They were abusing Christian liberty to engage in sinful activity. They were abusing Christian liberty to engage in sinful activity. And understand this, that, that Balaam back in the Old Testament was trying to merge paganism with Jehovah God and, and the Word of God. And we see the Nicolaitans were trying to keep one foot in the Roman culture and one foot in the Christian church. And they were trying to bring it together. And I want you to understand this, that it does not mix together. Have you ever tried to put oil and water together? What happens is it separates. And understand this, that, that the church is called to be separated from the Word, not just in practice, but in belief. Our doctrine, uh, John Stott, he was a pastor who, who recently passed away, and he was a unique pastor. He was a pastor who, who was single his entire life. And I believe he died in his 80s or 90s, and so he faithfully served God in that way. And he's written many books, and, and I found that, that as I was reading Dr. Heinsohn's commentary on the book of Revelation, he quoted John Stott, and I thought it was worth sharing. He said this, The emperor cult has long since vanished, but the false prophet has not died. He lives again in every non-Christian religion and philosophy and in every attempt to divert to others the honor that is due to Jesus Christ alone. Sure, emperor worship is gone. Sure, people are not really worshiping Zeus today. But understand this, that false prophets are alive and well today. False teachers are alive and well today teaching things that do not line up with the Word of God. That's why it is essential that every single day, every week, every month, every year, we are digging into God's Word, and we're a part of a church that digs into God's Word. Listen, there's so many people that, that try to tell me that, hey, you know, the, the, the purpose of a pastor is just to talk about good sermons and, and feel-good stuff and motivational TED Talks, if you will. I want you to understand this, that, um, that all that is nice and it has its place, but the Bible says that we are called to promote the theology found in God's Word. Theology, you know what it means? It means the study of God. When you open up God's Word, you know what you're doing? You're studying theology and God Himself. And so it would be foolish for us not to study the Word of God together on a Sunday or a Wednesday when we gather together or any other day of the week. But understand this, here's how it all ties in here in verse number 15 and in verse number 14. You see that they were adopting these believers who were living in Pergamos and a part of this church, they were adopting these teachings. And the leaders were not willing to confront the false doctrine. Of course, we read about in the book of Matthew where Jesus highlights the area of church discipline, how you go to them privately first, and then you take a group of people with you, you go to them privately again, and if the issue is so severe, you bring it to the entire church body. 
And so today, understand this, that, that, that church doctrine is so important. And that's why we, we don't adopt the Baptist faith and message. In fact, we, I'm not saying, I'm not, it's not a, I'm not degrading that by any way, shape, or form. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this, that we believe doctrine so, is so highly regarded in the eyes of God that we actually wrote out our own articles of faith as a church body many, many years ago. I wasn't involved in that, but I think Brother Joel and Brother English and a few others were. And it's so important that we look at that and we understand that God's word is supreme and we go to God's word to receive theology. Not to the university, not to the professor with a PhD, not to the YouTube preacher or the televangelist on TV, but we open up God's word and we believe sound doctrine. And so we are called not to compromise in this book, the Bible. We are not to compromise in what it teaches and that brings us to verse number 16. There is no room for compromise in the Christian life, my friends. Compromise, compromise, compromise is the message of this church. And we are called to resist the temptation to compromise the Great Commission. We are called to resist the temptation to compromise our sanctification we are called to resist the temptation to compromise sound doctrine, but now I want to share with you verse 16. The forethought today is this. Resist the temptation to compromise repentance and confession. Resist the temptation to compromise repentance and confession. Verse 16 begins with one word, repent. Would you say that with me? Repent. Say it again, please. Repent. One more time. Repent. When Jesus, or excuse me, when John the Baptist came on the scene before Jesus, he had a one-word message, repent. When Jesus comes on the scene after John the Baptist, he had a one-word message, repent. When the early church began to see souls come to Christ, they had a one-word message, repent. And today we see that the same message that they preached is a similar message that we preach today. It is repent. And we see that here in this passage of scripture. This is a term that is used for this body of believers. And there's times as an unbeliever that we're called to repent, that is to change our mentality about sin. Let me just share with you something. Can I just summarize what repentance means? It means this, get right with God. That's all it means. Get right with God. And here it says we, we are called to change our mind about what we believe about God, what we believe about our sin. And we are to acknowledge our sin before God. And then we are called to confess it before him. So the good news here, I know that verse 14 and verse 15, it hits us pretty hard sometimes because we are sinners. We live in a fallen world. All have come short of the glory of God. And, and the Bible says that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the good message that Jesus came to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could have our sins remitted and so that we could experience redemption in his name. And 1 John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've blown it with idolatry or if you've blown it with gross immorality, understand this, that God can forgive. And here, Jesus Christ is declaring to this church that they need to repent of their beliefs, of this false doctrine, to the lifestyle that they've adopted, and to get back to worshiping God in spirit and in truth. 
Today, I'm not speaking about going to a booth and confessing your sins to an earthly human being. I'm not saying that. Today, I'm not saying you need to have an, make an appointment with me and you need to list out every sinful act you've ever done so that I can pray over you. That's not what I'm saying. If you need to talk, I'm always available. But understand this, that I can't forgive your sins. Only God can. No priest, no Catholic, no Anglican, no Protestant pastor, nobody can forgive your sins apart from Jesus Christ. And so when God tells us to repent, we have to do it. Every day, we need to be confessing our sins because we sin all the time. Now, maybe you have just found the sweet spot in your Christian life and you no longer sin. Well, maybe pray for me and everybody else who still struggle with sin and so that God would help us to confess our sins every single day. Now, what happens if we don't confess our sins? Well, the verse says, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. God's word, God's word, it brings judgment. Yes, it brings life. Yes, it brings deliverance, but it also brings judgment. And the Bible says that judgment begins not in the synagogue of Satan, but in the house of God. So today, understand this, that if there is any type of sin in your life, repent and confess it. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today is the day when you bow your knee, confess with your mouth that he is Lord. But that leads me to verse number 17. In fact, as, you're gonna under, as you'll see, the last verse of all these churches is often the hardest verse to understand in the, in the, in the message for the church. We understand compromise is the message here. There's no room for compromise in the Christian life. But the final thought I want to share with you from this text in verse number 17 is this thought about temptation, compromise, and our faith. Resist the temptation to compromise salvation. Resist the temptation to compromise salvation. Look at verse 17. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's what the Spirit of God is saying. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. Let's pause. The word overcome has been mentioned two previous times in the two previous churches. And it's a term that simply means God is the one who brings the victory. And we have victory in Jesus Christ as a Christian. So we are overcomers because Christ has overcome death, hell, and the grave. But then it says, will I give to eat of the hidden manna? This takes us back to the Old Testament when the children of Israel were wandering around for 40 years in the wilderness and God rained down manna from heaven. That is bread with honey on it. And I'm sure it tasted good, but I'm sure after 40 years, well, they might've got a little tired of it. And that's why I read about all the complaining, but God rained down manna from heaven. And then we read about later on in the season of the, of the wilderness journey that they built an ark or they had an ark of the covenant and they took Aaron's rod, they took the tablets of stone and they took the manna and they placed the manna in the ark of the covenant. And all this would symbolize that one day God, the son would fall down from the heavens and inhabit humanity and as in John chapters, uh, in the book of the gospel of John, the Bible says that, that Jesus is the bread of life. And so if you partake of the, the message of the cross, you partake in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then it says, I will give him a white stone. Now, a whole lot of discussion has been about this word white stone and what it means. But I liked what one commentator suggested. 
He suggested that this white stone symbolizes the stone that the victors received in the Olympian games in the ancient Roman culture. How they would be given a victor's crown. And then a white stone would also be given to them. And that stone would be a ticket to enter into the festival and feast to come afterwards. Our ticket to paradise is not a white stone that we win as a trophy after winning a baseball game. Our ticket to paradise or heaven is Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that ticket outside any other way, the Bible says you're a thief and a robber. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only truth. And Jesus is the only life. And he goes on to say, and in the stone, a new name written. And I really have no idea what name that is. Because actually the Bible says no man knows, saving he that receives it. As we see this verse, we see that the church at large today has compromised the Great Commission. We've moved to a prosperity gospel. We've moved to a social gospel. We've moved to all these sorts of things. We see that the church at large today has compromised sanctification. That, hey, it's, it's, it's okay to live however you want to live. As long as you believe in Jesus, it's all good. The church at large today has compromised sound doctrine of the Word of God. Today, when you go to a church, in fact, most of the churches in Roanoke today, it's a, it's a sad day in history, but, but in most of the churches in our own city, they're not going to have the Word of God expounded. In fact, the Word of God will be very rarely ever referenced. The church at large today has compromised in repentance and confession, that now there's no urgency of repenting and confessing sin to God. And then, because of all this, of course, the church at large today has compromised salvation by grace through faith. As I think about verse 17 in this passage, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Luke's gospel. He said, rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. I'm thankful today, because my name is in that role that's going to be called up yonder. I'm thankful today that when that role is called, I'll be there, there to worship my Lord and my Savior and my sovereign King and righteous judge for all eternity. But as I also think about verse 17, I also think about a hymn that we sing in our hymnal. And I want to read the verses to you, and then I want to read the chorus to you. The title of the song is A New Name in Glory. We haven't sung it in a while, but it's a great song. It says, I once was a sinner, but I came, pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I found that he always kept his word. I was humbly kneeling at the cross, fearing not but God's angry frown. When the heavens opened and I saw that my name was written down. In the book, tis written, saved by grace. Oh, the joy that came to my soul. Now I am forgiven. And I know by the blood I am made whole. The chorus rings out. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story. A sinner has come home. 
For there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to roam. Could you imagine if Jesus would have compromised his mission on this earth? Our names, our places, our reservations in heaven may not have ever been secured. May I ask you something? Have you compromised in any area of your walk with Christ? There is no room for compromise in the Christian life. And that is the message we read in this passage. So may God help us to be faithful. May God help us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith, 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.